Hi everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode number 13, unlucky for some, of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. So today's episode number 13 is going to be about delays. So going back to episode number four, where we spoke about extensions of time, we were largely talking about notices and issuing notices and how to identify that delays are happening to you on a site and basically what to start doing about it. And part of the thrust of what I was getting at when we're speaking about notices is that they are there to give somebody notice of something. And one of the things that is wise to do when you're issuing a notice is to call the person that you're sending it to. Certainly if you've got a less contractual contact within the business, you might want to call them as well and talk about the reasons why you're issuing a notice in the first place. Ultimately, these things can end up in a bit of a tit-for-tat situation. As some contractors will see a notice, they'll say, oh, you're acting contractual. I'm going to issue my notice to you. And this thing can end up in a bit of a bun fight. And basically, all because you're trying to make somebody aware that there's a problem. So you want to think about how you're delivering your notice. And a meeting, or certainly a phone call, jumping on Teams, Zoom, whatever, having a conversation about it before it lands in somebody's inbox or in somebody's pigeonhole, can avoid some of the heartache. And there's a few things you can point out when you're submitting a notice. You can point out you've got your own terms and conditions and your contractor hasn't appointed you under those terms and conditions, but they've chosen a subcontract. And the subcontract tells you to submit a notice if there is something that may have time and cost effects. And really, you're being a helpful subcontractor and a useful member of the supply chain by pointing out something that may go wrong at a point where something can be done about it, hopefully avoiding heartache and time, cost, energy on all parties. And you're doing this to bring things to people's attention before it becomes a big issue, it spirals out of control and it causes a huge delay to a job. So you're trying to sell that you're doing this for the right reasons. And the old arguments of, oh, don't be too contractual and we'll sort everything out at the end. You can still sort everything out at the end with a piece of paper in each other's hands. You haven't got to fall out with each other about it. And you've got to think, the people that you're working for aren't the enemy in any situation. You're working for them, you want to have a working relationship with them. Bad situations that crop up are the real enemy. And what you're doing is putting somebody on notice that we've got a situation to deal with, we've got an enemy to fight together. So as I mentioned, within your subcontract, there will be a clear place where it tells you where to issue notices to. And the notice is the kicking off of the process, it's the start of the extension for time and the loss and expense process. And ultimately, you're sending in a notice, it might not even come to anything. Hopefully, you can say, hey, this area over here, I'm expecting to start working on it in two weeks' time. It doesn't look like you're going to be ready. The contractor can divert some extra labour to it, ask one of their other subcontractors to resource that area better, and before that two weeks is up, the problem's solved, nobody's delayed, 
everybody's happy. And at the end of the day, if you can submit notices and that happens, everybody wins. So you can also say, it's your duty to do these things. You're being responsible, you're being mature, you're doing the right thing for everybody. And it may well be, alright, the situation can't be got rid of, but then perhaps you're bringing to the contractor's attention something that is going to delay the whole of the job and it's down to the client. And by sending them a notice, you've started the process of their awareness and they can submit a notice to the client and cover off a risk to them at the same time. So ultimately, you don't know where these things are going to go. But crucially, if you miss the boat on doing it, you can wave goodbye to your entitlement. And you may also be waving goodbye to any protection that an extra extension of time is going to give you. So missing out on your extension of time can put you at financial risk. And because the contractor's told you to not be too contractual or don't worry about it, we'll sort it later. Now, follow the process that's set out in the subcontract. The contractor sent you the subcontract. They want you to operate in that way. Otherwise, as I said, they would just place an order against your quote and have done with it that way. Use the provisions and the tools that are part of the document, part of the order, and part of the way that the contractor wants you to deal with them. So in episode four, I spoke about some ways that you can try and monitor the works, using some regular visits to sections that you're working on, taking photographs, taking records, and looking at either areas that you've finished and you're expecting to take back control of later, or the next areas that you are expecting to work in. There's two fronts to an extension of time, the time and the cost elements. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to presume we're working in a JCT situation rather than NEC situation. If you are working on an NEC job, the compensation event process is that all-in-one time and cost system and it requires you to assess the time impact at the same time as addressing a change. There are obviously other events which are just around time, but we will come back and do another episode and talk in more detail about that in the future. Being right about it, if you are, and I speak more about JCT because more of the world uses it and that's that's all. Being right about things If you've been instructed to do something and you know that there is a time impact to it, there is no reason why you wouldn't cost in your prelims and advise your contractor at that point that it's going to take you longer. If it's patently clear, they will understand that and want to have dealt with it up front. It is worth reading your subcontract, as I've pointed out before, as some conditions will ask you to do that. And then it will be a situation of if you haven't done it at the right point, then you've lost the entitlement. But this is why it's always worth reading the document before you enter into an agreement. Understanding the deal is a key part of remaining profitable. So take the time to do it and protect yourself. So we're in a situation now, we've submitted a notice, we've identified something which might happen... We're giving the contractor enough time to go and have a look at it, see if there's anything you can do about it. But ultimately, in three weeks' time, you're still not able to access what you were supposed to be able to, 
so a section of the work is delayed. So firstly well done for getting your notice in and identifying something ahead of time. Next we need to make sure that we've got records of what's causing the issue. This can be done via emails to your contractor, you can take photos, your site manager's diary, any kind of contemporary records as in taken at the time can be used to substantiate a problem at a later date. Ideally what you want to have is a photo of whatever it is, it's in your way, it's stopping you from doing it. It's time marked, it's date marked, you've got it on an email from the same day and then at a later date when whatever it is has been moved out of the way or it's been corrected, it's been got rid of, you need to record the date when you start doing what you're supposed to be doing. So let's give you a real basic example of this. You're a fencing contractor. You've been working on site for a little while now, but it's getting to a point where your nice long runs of fences around the perimeter are complete. And in a couple of weeks of time, you're going to be installing the last bit of fence which ties up to the building and in between the building and where you are now. It runs through where the contractor had his compound and there's mortar silo bases, containers, all sorts of rammel in there that hasn't been got rid of yet. So helpfully you've written to the contractor and said, you are aware that I need access to that area in the next two weeks. Obviously if this stuff isn't moved out of the way, I won't be able to finish and it's going to cause a delay to the external works. My fencing work and follow on trades are also going to be affected. So you've already got your notice submitted. Two weeks later, annoyingly, the contractor hasn't got rid of all of his kit. He has started breaking up the silo bases, but his container's still there. He's got other subcontractors who need storage. So he's in a bit of a no-win situation. But rather than move the containers and let you finish, he's actually delaying your works and your works are critical to finishing the externals. So you go back you take some photos, you send your further email and you say to mitigate any further costs you're going to demobilise from site so that you haven't got a fencer sat there on day work doing absolutely nothing and you wait for the contractor's instruction to remobilise so you nip back to site, you have a quick look at the state of that area it's all ready for you and you now confirm to the contractor I'll bring my men back and my kit and we'll be on site in two days time. Doing things like that and having an email record, having photographs of things that are causing you issues is critical to establishing the facts around a delay or an event. It's really good practice to get into. Just sending a simple confirmation, even if things happen over the phone, to say, I've had this conversation with you just to confirm as discussed, I'll be back on this date. It's simple, it's innocuous, nobody's going to fall out with you about it. It does just help you establish facts. You might not necessarily need to rely on those facts, but if you've done it, at least they're there. And it won't be the first time I've said this, and I'm sure it won't be the last. One of the mantras within the quantity surveying realm is records, 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 and for fuck's sake, get more records. This is a really, really simple way of creating a record that isn't refuted, 
and it's no good relying on Captain Hindsight to tell you what you should have done afterwards. You need to get into the habit of doing these things at the relevant time. You may never need to rely on it, but you can't rely on it if you haven't got it. And then what do you have to do next? So the next element is requesting an extension of time. So the request for an extension of time is a retrospective tool or retrospective request. And what we basically want to do here is give the contractor the information to determine how much time has been lost. And the amount of time to be added to your contract period, your subcontract period for delaying events should be logically calculated. And the contractor has an obligation to calculate and award an extension of time. And it should be done with impartiality and objectively. And simply put, if the contractor has caused you a delay, he can't fail to give you an extension of time. He can't not do it. Happily, in the example that I gave, you've got some really clear records that show when the delay started, when the delay finished, and you've even got photos of what it was. And that's utopia, really. You need to be striving to keep those kind of records. Now, I've obviously described something that is pretty basic, it's pretty clear what the issue is. There's a lot more complexity to these situations sometimes, particularly if we're talking of disruption and it's done in a sort of piecemeal fashion, a dripping tap of delay. And also if there is some kind of concurrency of delay between an event that you've had some hand in creating or it's down to you with an event that the contractor is creating. Then obviously you've got the issue of holding your hand up to delays that you've caused, but still asking for the relevant extension of time for contractor cause delays. We will talk about that on another day and we'll talk about some more detailed methods of assessing delay on another episode. Typically they're done retrospectively and there's four main ways to do it. None of them are overly simple and unless your delay is particularly complex I would argue that none of them are really necessary. It does tend to be something that contractors, contract administrators, client agents, all of these people hide behind when they're talking about delay. They want some programmer to come along, paint a picture of it and tell them what the answer is. And for sure, there are situations, as I say, where you definitely will need a program analysis and you'll need to put some real thought into demonstrating how delays have impacted the site. And it's because of these critical path methods that I think really people have become a little bit lazy about establishing the facts themselves, which a lot of the time they're well able to do, and just getting on and acknowledging the issues and dealing with it. So the Society of Construction Law, a body that most clients and contractors have heard of within the industry, they have a delay and disruption protocol and they describe four main types or techniques rather, for ascertaining delay. You've got as planned versus as built, where you take a planned program of work and update all of the activities to show their as built durations, inserting any events that prolong the program within them. You've got impacted as planned, where you effectively maintain 
the as planned program, your first program before you start anything, and for each bit of delaying event, you shunt the critical activities to the right and insert it in. And where possible, you use the same theoretical outputs for activities as you planned at the start to insert changes and the like and events into the program. You have collapsed as built where in effect you take the as built program, you include within it events which have had an extension of time granted and then it shows a difference between when you could have finished versus when you did finish. And then finally you've got time impact analysis where the project is broken up into windows of time which are typically a month long and you look at what happened basically within each window to work out an overall impact on the program. Impacted as planned is probably the most commonly used as I say we'll delve into a bit more detail on this on another episode as much for the sake of not wanting to bore you to tears with it all in one hit as anything else. Whilst I've mentioned all of those methods, none of them are prescribed in any of the main subcontracts and any of the main main contracts. And as I say, I genuinely don't think they're necessary in a lot of cases. Your contractor is based on site. Their site management team are there. Probably the QS is there. They probably have a visiting planner, unless it's a pretty big scheme or one with complex reporting requirements. 99% of the time they're going to know what the issues are on their job and they should have enough information themselves to be able to determine an extension of time without the need for some fancy pants program. But that's not to say that if you have got one that you shouldn't use it. It will help your case most likely. And for the time it takes to knock something up on Excel just to give some outline duration, something high level, the impact that can have visually in showing what the issue has done far outweighs the effort that it takes to do it sometimes. It's about the records. More than anything else, it's about the records. What day did you start? What day did you get access to each little section? If you're working on a large building, are you getting continuity between room to room to room? If you're on a housing site, are you getting the same continuity between house to house to house? If you're not, what's holding you up? These are the things that you need to be recording. Knowing when you started a particular section, activity, house, whatever. Knowing when you finished it. Issues that you've come across whilst you're actually doing the work. These are all things that you should be getting recorded. And then when it gets to the writing of your extension of time request, it makes your job that much easier in that if you can demonstrate, I started X on X date, I had to stop on Y date because of this, I restarted on Z date, it's almost job done. So what should that request look like? In part this depends on what your contract looks like. You should be submitting it to the same place as you're submitting your notice. So we discussed this in episode 4, but there will be somebody, a name, an address, an email address sometimes, noted within your subcontract as the official person to send correspondence to or notices to and you're writing them a letter you want to tell them a brief story about what the issue is the more that you can keep this to the pure facts the better you don't really want to cloud the issue by waffling on about hearsay now your subcontract may have one big date so you start on this date you finish on x date 
If that's the case, this probably requires a little bit less work because you're just talking about the duration of whatever event has impacted the finish date, the completion date. If you've got multiple sections of work, there's a little bit more to do, but you want to describe your events, and then I would recommend putting a table together showing the start date of your section, the finish date of your section as per the contract, the duration of any delays and note them in order against each section and then the revised completion date so the original finish date add the period of delay gives you the revised finish date the next thing that you want to do is to note the relevant subcontract event if there's more than one event that you're writing about here you will of course want to note the relevant subcontract event for each of them Given how some of these are written, it's probably worth doing a whole other episode on the nature of the relevant subcontract events and what they all mean. So I think we'll do that for the next episode. So if you're listening to today, episode 13, tune into episode 14 and we'll delve into more detail as to what the 17 relevant subcontract events are under a JCT design and build subcontract. And of course, most of them are the same in the standard building subcontract. But I feel that the design and build contract is more common. You also want to note whether the events that you've described are relevant subcontract matters as well. So I mentioned this in previous episodes. You've got some relevant events which are neutral, such as your force majeure or your weather events. For these events, you can obtain extension of time and that stops you being charged for LADs or other time-associated contra charges. For things that are caused by the contractor, though, you can recover prelims and other associated costs, but what you must do is note the relevant matter when you're requesting your extension of time. So this is one you will have to open up your subcontract and pick out the references that are relevant to these events. And as I say, clearly note the relevant subcontract event and the relevant subcontract matter. Next, to make it a real slam dunk, you want to refer to those emails, photographs and other records that we mentioned earlier on. And the best thing you can do is print a copy off and append it to the letter. Then you've got no question about what email is being referred to, what issue, what date, and therefore you make an open and shut case. This delay started on this date, this delay ended on this date. And if you can do this, it makes it really easy. You've demonstrated the start, you've demonstrated the end. There's no even opportunity to argue. And if things ultimately escalate further and there's some need for third party resolution you're proving your case beyond a shadow of a doubt but also you're reducing the likelihood that the contractor is going to react apathetically to your claim because you're giving all of the information there in one hit to make a determination to find the answer and to award you that extension of time so we've touched on loss and expense briefly there in the guise of recording a relevant subcontract matter. Again, that's a subject all of its own. And to do that any justice, I think that warrants another episode of its own. So we'll come back to that at another time. So as I mentioned, this is a difficult subject. There's 
quite a lot to cover here and I'm only really scratching the surface in what I've spoken about to date. The whole delay analysis subject is a debate of its own and I'm sure I'll be covering it. I may well even get hold of some guests to talk about that as a specific subject matter and really get you the lowdown on it. But I'd like to think you've got some useful tools there, some useful nuggets that you can take away in action. And I've tried to debunk and make in a simple form my own recipe for submitting an extension of time request. So I hope you find that of use. If you know anybody else that may find it interesting, I'd be really grateful if you could share the show with them so that together we can reach and help more subcontractors. So thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how to do videos, interviews and more. And it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. And you can cancel anytime. We're also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome.